Hi, I'm Tim Manny. I'm a chairmaker and toolmaker in South Portland, Maine, and this is Cut the Craft. Brian and I are very similar. <laughs> we kind of say the same thing all the time. But, uh -huh. our, bra uh, our brains are like a Venn diagram where <laughs> most of the circle is overlapped. <laughs> it's like a crescent moon of yeah. different <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you're known around Jonesboro as Mr. Perfect. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> hilarious, first of all. That's like, but I feel like anyone who, anyone who Curtis tells a story about is basically <laughs> tells in that light, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, oh, Will, Will's the best. Will's my favorite. You know, like, uh, <laughs> no, that's, I'm, I'm <laughs> that's fine. Because I think in conversation with me, it will become clear that I don't view myself that way. By, by any Super. Stretch, so. <laughs> well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everyone. I'm Brian. I'm Amy. And I'm Tim. <laughs> and we are here with Tim. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> well, Tim, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, Amy, take it away. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, Tim. Uh, so we're super, super excited to have you on the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you make? Um, you mentioned chair making and tool making. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about both of those things and your process. Yeah. So I make, um, so I learned to make chairs. I trained with a Windsor chair maker named Curtis Buchanan down in Tennessee. And uh, that was 10 years ago now. And so I learned to make chairs from Curtis and then kind of set my life up using him as a model, um, trying to have a real small shop and um, be able to, uh, to keep the overhead very low. So I was, I designed some ladder back chairs, some post and rung ladder back chairs to, to make. And I still make some of those, but another Windsor chair maker friend of mine, Pete Galbert had kind of gotten me into making, uh, reamers, which is a super specialized, um, woodworking tool for people who make Windsor chairs. And so I started making those a similar time frame about 10 years ago. And that has increasingly become more and more what I do is is make the tools. Well, I feel like it's always really helpful in a trade when you have somebody who makes tools for the trade that has practiced that so you can really know what is needed from the tool. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that letting the kind of the function, but also the for me, I really want the tools to feel a certain way and to be intuitive to use. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I definitely put a fair amount of time into just making sure the things, when I send a tool out to someone, I send it with the depth of cut adjusted and sharpened so that they can just take it right out, use it, and they'll immediately have the feel of what that tool should feel like. And they can use that feeling to guide them in the future, like when they need to sharpen it or do they need to advance or retract the blade? You know, yeah. those kinds of questions. That's really smart. Some people maybe are ordering a reamer and have never used one before and they just got it because they're like, you know, they know that they need it to, to, uh, make the whole, the right, uh, demand. Yeah. The right shape <laughs> and right dimension and everything in a Windsor chair. And, um, and how would you know 
it needs sharpened unless <laughs> unless you'd had experience with it before, you know. So that yeah, I think that's really that's thoughtful and smart. I think. Yeah, maybe worthwhile just to say that reamers make tapered holes. And so you're drilling a hole first, and then the reamer is going in there and flaring out one end of the hole. Correct. Yep. You got okay. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Into like a cone shape. Ooh, yeah. I could go for a nice cone <laughs> right now. Why? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't. It's you have to be socially distant. <laughs> oh, I know. But think about how cool it would be to have a little stand where all the holes were perfectly reamed out to ice cream cone dimension. And you could just drop the cones in there, and they would like perfectly rest in there uh-huh. <laughs> for the five minutes until they melted. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, Tim, I uh, I think probably there might be some of our listeners who know what a Windsor chair is um, yeah. and know what a ladder back chair is. Maybe you can give us like a brief description of those two different chairs. Great. Yeah. So a Windsor chair is, they're usually, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere um, and uh, in varying levels of quality. But things that distinguish it are usually has a solid seat and then uh, legs that usually splay out uh, from mm-hmm. that solid seat on, to form the bottom of the chair. And then the upper portion of the chair is usually uh, spindles, usually something like 7 to 13. And, and um, spindles are just like the little pole thin, sticky yep. things? Yeah, thin round sticks. That's all. <laughs> um, and so, and then they those spindles go into some kind of usually a bent um, crest or arm bow or something like that. So like a hoop back is a really common kind of Windsor chair that you see in a lot of people's houses where the back of the chair is like an, as a piece of wood that's bent into like a, an upside down U shape mm. and that fits into the seat. And then the spindles join the seat and the, and the, that upside down U shaped bow as well. So then Tim, what, what's a ladder back chair? So a ladder back chair, you know, that's a good question. I don't necessarily have as good of a dis- solid description as of one, mm-hmm. but di- differences would be that the seat is usually woven, mm-hmm. um, and the rather than like on a Windsor chair where the seat is um, separate, and the that means that the legs in the in the back specifically, like the rear legs of a Windsor chair, are separate from the whatever forms the back. In a ladder back chair, the rear legs uh, below the seat are also the main kind of support or um, form of the back of the chair as well. Mm -hmm. And then the difference for a ladder, the back of a ladder back chair is usually slats. And then below the woven seat, there's often, say, like, I have 10 rungs on the ones that I'm sitting in right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could have as many as 12 rungs, so three on each side. Mm -hmm. And the rungs are just like uh, just thinner pieces that join the front legs and the rear legs. Mm -hmm. Like shaker chairs would be Mm -hmm. iconic ladder back chairs. Or like country chairs. Yeah, yeah, kind of a vernacular sort of, you know, chair. It's not – It's to me, it's it's the sort of thing that feels maybe a little more – like rustic but not in like a barn wood sort of way it's like uh something that every farm would have had you know because the farmer could make it if he didn't have like a reamer which is a specialized tool you could just make it with a brace and an auger um yeah and some wood that was out in the forest somewhere 
Uh, so were there sort of like statuses uh, assigned to these different chairs? Because it sounds like, in many senses, like a Windsor chair is a lot fancier of a chair, whereas a ladder back is, seems more of like, as Amy was saying, a vernacular type chair or like a country chair. Yeah. So I'm not an expert in that actually. And I would say I'm, I've generally been just more interested in them from a design perspective, Mm. but I think it, in some ways it has to do with, um, like, I think there was a real, there was a period and I don't know the era, but there was a period of real boom in Windsor chairs where they were like, they were being produced in totally insane numbers. Um, and so they became pretty ubiquitous then. But I mm-hmm. think they tended their production tended to be a little more focused around urban areas, especially in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least when you if you look back through like the historic books about um, Windsor chairs that are printed in English, their their styles are defined by their area like Rhode Island or Philadelphia or Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes me tend to think that their their production was kind of focused around these urban areas. And then, yeah, just from looking at the old books, I have that image of people who are living a little bit more remotely. Like that's where the ladderbacks kind of came from. Yeah. So. yeah. And I'm assuming the name ladderback comes from the fact that the backrest for the chair with those horizontal slats going across resembles a ladder. You got it. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I'm real smart. <laughs> and some, sometimes, sometimes people call them post and rung chairs as well. Oh, yeah. Because the okay. basic structure of the chair is that you have four posts and then the rungs are what join the, the undercarriage of the chair. And dear listeners, we promise we'll post pictures of both styles of chairs uh, so that you can, if this doesn't work for you, uh, we'll have some visuals. <laughs> but Tim, I think you did a great job. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's hard. It's funny how like even the chair, like I actually have more experience with ladderback chairs and I find them to be harder to describe. Well, I think the uh, the description with where you have sort of the plane being disrupted by the seat in a Windsor yeah. chair and it being a continuous, you know, line from the bottom to the top of those back posts mm-hmm. for the ladder back is very helpful. Yeah, Although that, I probably just muddied that a little no, bit. No, 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 that was perfect. <laughs> That's exactly the distinction that I think probably, yeah, that I try to, that I try to make. Yep. Yeah. That makes cool. Different. Yeah. And from a design perspective, one of the things that's interesting about that is like, if you can imagine that you're designing a Windsor chair and you can completely separate the top from the bottom, it opens up a lot of possibilities for uh, what you can do with design. So because that ladder back chair leg goes from the top of the chair all the way to the bottom, you're much more restrained on what you can do from a design perspective. And so you're, that, that like challenge appeals to you? It and does, that- yeah. This is revealing about my personality. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There's something there. It's like, ooh, what can I do here? Can I find something a little bit different than something else that I see in the world? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just playing around with that. But I like limitation. I would say that's a like a general theme for me. Yeah, it's like uh, Yoga Sundqvist, the you know famous spoon carver kind of person from Sweden. Mm-hmm. He uh, uh, the way he talks about those kind of limitations driving creativity, it's like it forms a, uh, it forms a boundary for you to work within and kind of know what to push against and what to play with. 
So yeah, I find that to be a, a a large appeal for many people in the bookbinding world as well. For instance, there's one of my favorite binders in the country, Peter Garrity of Praxis Bindery. Um, his little slogan is, if I'm remembering it correctly, tradition bound to innovation, mm. which is a great pun, but then also that <laughs> sort of speaks to that. Yes, we're dealing with these traditional things, but at the same time, uh, it, it allows us to push it in new directions. Yeah. And that's that where was- I've always <laughs> seen, uh, you know, in the chair world that I'm kind of a part of, that's the th- a thing that's always been inspiring to me is seeing someone who's worked in that medium for a number of years and when their work becomes distinctly recognizable mm-hmm. oh interesting you know when you can see when you know if you if i saw it out there i'd say oh that's a peter galbert chair you yeah. know i recognize it anywhere or that's a curtis buchanan chair or a greg mm-hmm. pennington chair mm-hmm. um and maybe you can tell by the way the turning fl- the leg turnings flow or mm-hmm. um mm-hmm the subtle details, but they reach a point where you realize, oh, that person, you know, they've just been changing those little things kind of just enough over a long enough period of time that it's something new and kind of distinct. That's really interesting. I love that idea of say, you know, you, for instance, you apprenticed with Curtis, there must've been a period of time where your chairs were sort of like little Tim Curtis chairs. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but then and as you sort of really, <laughs> you know, oh, cool. like that still, you know, uh, that carries through. I, I think that, that kind of thing is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe I, the thing, the detail that I would focus on there is the through repetition of many years, that thing changing mm-hmm. and just becoming a little bit in, you know, a little bit more of the person, that has taken up that tradition um, and kind of seeing the path that they go and the little bit different thing, things. Mm-hmm. That they right. Mm-hmm. And so you see yourself still on that journey of establishing your own distinct voice or is that just you being modest? No, I def, I'm definitely very, I mean, I've pretty much, this also reveals too much about me, but I pretty much designed <laughs> like one chair in 10, in 10 years. So, um, yeah. I tend to be pretty like, yeah, focused and um, yeah, in pursuit of like ideal form to my own detriment, you know, <laughs> not a... <laughs> but, so, I mean, how when you say you've designed one chair, what does that entail exactly? Is that the type of thing where you know this is a, like you finally made a chair where you're like, this is enough of mine so that I could draw plans and someone be like, no, that's, a, that's not a Curtis one anymore. That's a Tim one. Yeah, I guess it's interesting to think to think about the genealogy of these things because the, mm. the chair that is the basis for the chair that I make, which is a three slat ladder back is a chair that Dave Sawyer made before he started making Windsor chairs. Um, and Dave Sawyer is the person who Curtis Buchanan learned to make chairs from. Uh huh. So there's a, there's a pretty, I feel like in chair making, especially, there's like this lineage that happens every time I talk to a chair maker. They're like, um, I learned from this person and this person learned from this person and and that person learned from like Adam and Eve. Right. (laughs) It actually pretty much all goes back to like Dave Sawyer, though. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He's like the the godfather. Well, so then, yeah. Do you, what happened with him? Like, where, how did he, 
get into it? I mean, I, I know I've had this my is a own... great question that yeah. I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, uh, yeah. You know, his son, George is making chairs mm-hmm. and I would, I would love to hear that interview. Ooh. Oh, okay. Well n- noted. Yeah. A lot of green woodworkers, when they're talking about lineage and who they've learned from, it sort of goes back to country workshops. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I know I know a fair amount about that kind of lineage and who's involved and that sort of thing, but maybe that would be good for, for people to hear about that there there is a pretty distinct um, uh, tradition and lineage involved in the resurgence of green woodworking. And then maybe you yeah. could talk a little bit about why this might be like the end of the conversation a little bit about why chairs in particularly in particular interest you versus yeah. you know like why aren't you making cabinets or something you know also before we get into that i don't think that we've officially defined green woodworking on the show though oh. we've referred to it many times oh oh okay and so um if you wouldn't mind doing that, Amy or Tim. And then the second thing is, is Country Workshops a place or just a reference to Country Workshops as a, in general that are just people working in the country? It is a place. <laughs> I think that green woodworking is surprisingly slippery to define. Mm-hmm. So I would leave that to you, Amy. <laughs> oh, jeez. Lord. I'll get like angry emails from people or something. Well, actually, you can ignore any email that starts with well, actually. (laughs) Okay, so I think uh, just to keep it kind of brief, I think green woodworking is the general idea that you're not there. There are not a lot of like huge technological processes involved in getting the wood ready to be used. I. I think green woodworking often hinges on being able to go out and harvest a tree and split it rather than saw it like um, into boards. You kind of like work with the grain of the tree as your principal guiding force behind making, you can make chairs or spoons or bowls or something. It's a lot more less it's less machined and more about working with the fibers and then also not not necessarily relying heavily on kiln dried lumber and so you can make furniture and you can make cabinetry and that sort of thing but the principle behind it is a little different with green woodworking because you're having to work with the grain and compensate for expansion and contraction in a way that maybe machined lumber. And maybe if I can muddy the waters even more. (laughs) um, Do it. Like We're we're in this. Yeah, I try to use, I actually try to use the mindset of green woodworking, but I do use machines and dried lumber Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to, um, to actually as my material. Right. So... Yeah, it's just Dang, you are Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a weird term. In certain ways, it seems from but what both of you have said that green woodworking is partially referring to a philosoph a mindset of woodworking rather than a technique. It mm. also couldn't you, but could you just say at its most basic? 
green woodworking is working with fresh wood before it's dried, whereas more traditional woodworking that people think of is working with wood after it's dried. I think in a, I think as a simple definition, that's a really good kind of place to start. Mm-hmm. Like working from a yeah. tree with minim, minimally processed. Which is yeah. how Amy, you that was how Amy started. And then she rambled and rambled and rambled. No, 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 no. It was really helpful. <laughs> that's the piece though. That's like that piece is what's so slippery about it and why... Yeah. Um, why it's interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really liked that you were calling are referring to, Amy, was about like real focus. And the thing that I identify is like focus on the fibers of the material and really working mm-hmm. with the fibers and the nature of wood to inform the object that you're making. Yeah. Ooh, I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, that's really good. Because I see a lot of wooden wooden objects that to me have no, the way they're made has nothing to do with the material wood at all. They're just an object made out of this material, but you could substitute it with plastic or stone or whatever. It wouldn't matter. Like there's no response or conversation with the material actually in those objects. I feel like I'm somehow in therapy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like I could just listen to y'all like, yes. I'm sorry. (laughs) So if, I don't know, are are you guys, should we talk about country workshops? I know we've only answered like a couple of the questions on. Welcome to my world. (laughs) That's why it takes me 10 years to make one. Um, Yeah, I have, I have now sucked you into the black hole of my mind. Um, I can give a pretty brief rundown of how some of how I perceive that yeah Uh, Peter Follinsby would call it like a craft genealogy so there's this guy uh who lived in northern Maine named Bill Copperthwaite and he is uh kind of a wild character in the 60s 70s he was traveling around the world documenting handcrafts and Mm -hmm on one of his trips, he ended up in Sweden and he was like running around, uh, trying to find people doing things with axes and someone basically someone, I think in an effort to kind of pass bill off to someone else (laughs) because he was taking up too much of their time. They said, ah, you should go meet this guy, Billy Sundquist. He loves axes. And so (laughs) Bill went and, uh, met Billy Sundquist who is now kind of known in this green woodworking world as a really famous spoon carver, bull turner kind of person. And they hit it off. And then um, years later, um, Billy got invited to do a demonstration at uh, maybe at the Smithsonian or at some like uh, some big museum in New York. And he got invited to America for that. And the only American that he knew was Bill Copperthwaite. And so he reached out to Bill. <laughs> he sent him a letter and said, hey, I'm going to be in the, in the U.S. and I'm doing this demonstration. Um, and basically Bill set up a road trip where he took, uh, he picked Billy up in New York and they went to Vermont and visited the chairmaker Dave Sawyer. And they went, I think, to West Virginia and visited a basket, basket maker. Oh, um, cool. Martha... 
I can't remember her name right now. Martha Eberly, it's something like that. I can't remember. Hmm. She's a, a well-known basket maker. Eberly, White Oak sounds Splint. like a West Virginia name. Yeah, White Oak Splint, <laughs> Splint basket maker. She's written a book also. She's she's a well-known person. Oh, cool. Um, so uh, White Oak Splint Baskets, and um, they visited someone else who I'm forgetting. I think there were four main people that they visited. I'm forgetting one of them. But the last stop on the visit was with Drew and Louise Langsner, who were living in Western North Carolina, and were just set up on this uh, pretty large piece of property back in the mountains there. And uh, Billy showed up, Billy and Bill showed up, and they kind of hung around and Drew um, got really interested in learning from Billy and they hit it off. And uh, a year after that, Drew and Louise invited Billy to come back to the U.S. to uh, teach a spoon carving, spoon and bowl carving workshop um, that they would host at their house. And that was the first workshop that they put on. Uh, and that Drew and Louise Langsner are the people who started country workshops. And so that's the story that combines Bill Copperthwaite, Dave Sawyer, and um, Billy Sunquist, which mm-hmm. to me are all kind of major players in that green woodworking mm-hmm. revival. Revival, that's quite yeah, the tapestry. Yeah, yeah, it is. I yeah. and I think that it's really nice. I, I feel privileged to be connected to some sort of lineage um, as a green woodworker. At, at, I think often it feels like we're all just sort of a bunch of Americans just trying to figure out stuff, and there's no sort of rooted um, mm. tradition. Uh, it, you know, and I can only talk from my perspective. I'm sure there are other Americans who maybe don't feel that way, but I, I, I feel like maybe I'm not a total outlier in saying that, um, that it just feels really nice to have, to feel supported by sort of my craft ancestors. (laughs) 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 Sounds kind of ridiculous, I think, or maybe some nostalgia, like too nostalgic, but it is nice to have something to sort of lean into. Yeah. I think if one thing that's been interesting to me is, um, you know, another person who ties into that world is Peter Follinsby mm-hmm. and, um, who was a former intern at country workshops as, as I was also, I, I interned there mm-hmm. and, um, and that's how I met Curtis even actually. Oh, okay. But, um, Peter, has become increasingly interested in this idea of craft genealogies and tracking these stories of, you know, how did these people meet each other? Um, and how did this thing happen? That Mm -hmm. is what is going on now. And Oh, the other person that they visited, I remember now is Daniel O'Hagan who he was like a, uh, what's, what's the word for, there's like a phrase for these progressive Catholics in the sixties that were like, choosing to live in poverty uh, basically like a catholic worker yeah he was he was associated with them i think he had some letters published in the catholic worker and oh, okay um so he he had like a homestead and was doing timber framing and just mm-hmm. a really interesting um yeah it's, it's very interesting i i yeah there's something about it feels very special and i think maybe you, peter's on to something uh we'll have to get him on the show too and now i now I want to know what he thinks about all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's just sort, you know, at this point he's sorting through letters and trying to mm-hmm. figure out how these connections happened. So he, mm-hmm. he's doing some interesting research. Yeah. Um, so I, I've taken a little bit of a different turn here. Yeah. But uh, why, 
<laughs> why are you interested in chairs in particular versus other types of woodworking? So I would say that I had an interest in chairs initially because it was it seemed like something um, I was just interested in this idea that you could like take a tree and make it into a piece of furniture. So that was an interesting idea to me. Um, and then the uh, and then the more woodworking I did, I that idea. I don't want to say that it like lost interest, but it wasn't a driving force anymore um, until I met Curtis Buchanan. And he, what was, what was funny is that when I, by the time I met Curtis, I wasn't actually that interested in chairs, but I was really interested in him. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I understand and that. I, uh, I can, I can attest to that. Yeah. yeah. Like, whatever so I, you say, Curtis. <laughs> yeah. so I met Curtis and I just had, I had the feeling that I wanted to, Curtis was someone I wanted to learn from. Mm -hmm. And he happened to make chairs and he, uh, I had basically nothing going on in my life right then. Also, which was I had, I had just finished up, um, interning at country workshops and Curtis had, had come over and done a little presentation and, um, and I thought, Ooh, man, I would really like to work with him. I'd like to get to know him better. And then another young guy, Andy Jack, who has worked with Curtis, he lives in Connecticut and makes chairs now. Um, but, uh, Andy came to country workshops right at the end of that summer and he, to take a class with yoga Sunkvist, Billy's son and, uh, carving spoons and bowls. And Andy was down there taking this class, but he was then going to go work with Curtis for a couple weeks after, after the class was done. And he said, Oh, you should come over and, uh, meet Curtis and like, go see the shop and stuff. So I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds great. So I went over and uh met Curtis and he and I I left there I had such a good time and we're just hanging out in the workshop and um chatting yeah just having that really warm uh Jonesboro Tennessee good (laughs) good kind of feelings and uh yeah I left I left there thinking gosh how would I I would love to work with him how would that be possible and my summer was coming to an end at country workshop so my schedule was basically totally open I had no plan for that t- in that period of time. And he, about a week after that meeting, Curtis emailed me and said, do you want to come work with me? You, you know, would you like to come work with me sometime? Mm-hmm. And Whoa. I, yeah. And I said, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, he, and he said, great. When I was like, how about two weeks? <laughs> um, and so then I basically two weeks later, I was in Jonesboro and I stayed there for seven months uh, just working with Curtis, learning from him, learning how to make chairs. But at this point, you know, the real thing that I was learning was how he kind of watching him and how he had his life set up and, Mm -hmm. um, the, just the whole picture trying, trying to absorb as much of that whole picture as I could. He does have like the perfect, like little, um, Keebler elf cottage, his workshop. Yeah, <laughs> You just see like a little thing of smoke trailing up and it started with the wood shavings that are like the little offcuts from his chairs. Yeah. Then working with Curtis got me really back interested in chairs. And I do think there's good reasons. Like I, it's not an accident that I'm interested in chairs. Like they are in terms of, um, an object or a piece of furniture they're the ones that we interact with most intimately, 
you know, like our, mm-hmm. they hold our mm-hmm. bodies. So they're also mm-hmm. good chairs are, are basically like a negative shape of the human body. Um, mm. which then, you know, we also, I heard Brian Boggs who's another well-known chair maker say this one time and it's always stuck for me that, um, you know, we are also, we find human bodies to be beautiful. And so here's a form of furniture that is like a negative form of the human body. So the potential for beauty there, I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I've never thought of it that way. At all. Yeah, I hadn't either. I heard him say, I heard Brian say that one time and I just really latched onto it. I thought, man, that is yeah. so insightful and interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you left off the Boggs part when you just said, I heard Brian say that. So maybe people think that I said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Brian is so insightful. <laughs> um, no, actually your, uh, your statement sort of about uh, the form of the chair leads perfectly into a question that I had for you, which was as someone being myself who has never made a chair, but has often used one, obviously, <laughs> um, what's something that you wish everyone knew about handmade chairs as in what are considerations that most people sort of take for granted? Um, and I'm thinking specifically just, you know, even if it's something as specific as there are these weird angles where if you don't have that little pitch to it, then the Mm. chair will feel like it's tipping you out of it. That Mm -hmm. sort of thing. I think actually the things that I think people should know about handmade chairs are not very, they're like the details. It's not anything flashy or big, Mm -hmm. but it's like how the, how the fibers of the wood are oriented in construction. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think you could have a chair that's very well designed that was basically made by CNC machines. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I have no, I have no problem with, I personally have no problem with that chair. I think there are some really amazing chairs in fact, that are, that are made that way. Um, but maybe one of the things that I try to bring to chairs, like we've probably all had the experience of sitting, of sitting in a chair, like an old Windsor chair or an old ladder back chair at someone's table or like a, uh, a little camp as they call it in Maine, like a little cabin or something, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. where you sit down at that chair and when you, as soon as you shift your weight forward and back, the whole chair kind of moves forward and back yeah. with you because yes. all the joints are loose. Right. <laughs> yep. Right. So like that thing is basically, I try to, create the longest period of time in my chairs from when they're built to when that happens. And Mm -hmm. I do that by using knowledge of the materials. So how you orient the joints in the pieces of wood and how you orient the wood fibers of certain parts to make the joint as stable as possible so that as the wood expands and contracts with the change in relative humidity from summer to winter, um, you, you don't get that loose wobbly kind of feeling that we're all familiar with, with chairs that weren't carefully made. So it's not like it's nothing flashy. It's not like, uh, this magic angle or anything, but yeah. in those, de- those, uh, these are unseen details, mm-hmm. um, that really affect the, the term, uh, the longevity of that, of that chair. So when I'm making a chair, I'm, my hope is that it won't need any kind of work or anything done for let's say like 100 to 150 years. I just haven't lived long enough to see whether I (laughs) 
can do that. But that's <laughs> the frame that I use or try to try to see things through. Well, maybe in your next incarnation, yeah. you can like check it out. <laughs> yep. I'll just You'll tilt, come. tilt back in him real far. Tilt back. Yeah. yeah. Does that make you wince when people tilt back or do you no, just sort it. of try to build that? Okay, good. Because yeah. I do that habitually. Yeah, yeah. I see it as a comfort factor in a chair. That, uh-huh. um, it's like a, uh, there's a good thing that, that relates to uh, this, this woman who studies like ergonomics and she, uh, when asked like what, what the most, what the perfect position is or the most comfortable position to be in, the answer is the next one. (laughs) So like we should be able to move and that's how moving from one position to to another, we may, we maintain our comfort and that's kind of, we're not meant to just like sit in a static position for hours and hours and hours on end. So for me, being able to lean back on the two rear legs of a chair to tilt it back is Mm -hmm. a different position that you can be in that holds your weight a little bit differently. And maybe you only hold that position for 30 seconds or 15 seconds or something. And then when you drop back down and put all feet on the floor, you, uh, you're in a new position again. And it just kind of keeps you feeling loose and good. Do you know those shoes Heelys that have the little wheels oh, built yeah. into the heel? <laughs> do you think you could do that with a chair where the back two legs have Ooh. a little tiny like rocker I'm on sure them? I'm sure you could. So that they're built to like just lean back and rock <laughs> around and then go back down. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I thought you wanted to roll and skate around on it. I thought that's where you were going. I was like, yeah. wow, I think that could be a real challenge for balance. Uh, yeah. but, yes. That's what I was thinking That would too. also be cool. Oh, but I think wheelchairs got that got that itch covered. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Remember when you were a kid and somebody was picking on you and you couldn't do anything about it, so you just went home after taking it and drew a very simple drawing of an arrow where the point is the same design as the feathers and the stick figure of you is holding the curved bow and it's all pointed at the stick figure of Billy who is saying, you win, you win, don't kill me. And you're saying, okay, but you better be nice for forever or else. Remember that? Of course you do. Anyways, let's snap that arrow's spine. Don't worry, we're going to replace it. Now, layer the feather in the arrow over and over. That's herringbone, a pattern uniquely traditional and modern, seen in things as old as ancient Egyptian jewelry as well as your favorite fancy restaurant's floor and the soles of the fine shoes you wear there. This pattern comes from the skeleton of the herring, a fish deeper than it is wide, which is like a book because the potential a book carries between its covers is always deeper than its physical measurements, right? Now what does all this have in common, you ask? Herringbone Bindery and its bookbinder, Erin Fletcher. She's our new spine. Her last name provides feathers, standing for one who practices fletching, attaching feathers to the backs of arrows to make them aerodynamic and the books she makes are our arrowheads because from front to back they are as likely to uh strike you in an art gallery as they are at your friend billy's house because you guys grew up and worked things out and you told him to send his favorite text he'd worn out to her remember just don't hit him with it you're over that I, I know you personally, and we've had some pretty interesting conversations about your interest in 
um, body work? And can you define what that means for you and um, how has it influenced the way that you approach chair making? So I, I see body work as, yeah, maybe some kind of understanding of uh, pain in the body and uh, ways to address that or I'm like ergonomics and um, mm-hmm. movement and motion, uh, like basically just all the ways that we use our body um, are, are pretty interesting to me. So mm-hmm. because, I mean, the main, the bulk of my income actually comes from making these tools, the, the reamers for Windsor chairs. And so I've probably, I think I was just calculating before we started this conversation that I've, I've made over 2000 of them now. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And so that's a lot of repetition of very, of similar motions and also body positions. Like when I, I make them, I turn them at the lathe and when I'm Mm -hmm. turning, even though I've put a lot of effort into how my lathe is set up to be as ergonomic as possible, I still have to be looking, having my head down, Mm -hmm. uh, looking down the the same way that someone, someone's head is when they're looking at a phone. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's like not a great position to spend a tremendous amount of time in. It can be pretty aggravating to the body. Yeah. So um, for me, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to, you know, um, stretch and strengthen the parts of my body that are, um, that need, what do I want to say, balance from spending too much time in those types of positions. So. You're making me discover all kinds of weird little aches and pains that I have in my own body right now. As I'm sitting here. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the reality is like, uh, a lot of people are pretty disconnected from, you know, you let it, there can be a lot of pain in the body. And so mm-hmm. we can choose to kind of turn that off as a sensation. And mm-hmm. so as you get dialed into it, it can be a bit of a process of torture of realizing like, oh, <sighs> there actually is quite a bit of pain in my <laughs> for example, or, uh, in my hips or my neck, Mm -hmm. those kinds of places. And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as things can come into balance, I think there's also, you can have a lot of really like pleasurable sensation in the body as well. (laughs) So I don't want to just be talking about things from a pain pain perspective. Sure. Well, and so does that affect your, um, is it more something that I guess influences how your process of making chairs rather than your design for a chair? Yeah, I would say that is probably actually true. I mean, I, I also want a chair to have a reasonable amount of comfort, but knowing the other chairs, you know, for me, the per like Pete Gal, Peter Galbert, um, in terms of comfort in chairs is just, has done like totally incredible things. Um, and so because I know what's possible, um, (laughs) It makes me very cautious to say, like, I'm not in that, I'm not in that realm, but I think I can make a good chair that you can sit at and, uh, have, you know, have dinner, enjoy the company of friends, um, these kinds of things. But, uh, maybe for me, a gold standard of how comfortable a wooden chair is, is, um, would you be, would you be able to comfortably sit and like watch a three hour movie in that chair? Yeah, even like for me, the folk, like the types of chairs I make, I, I often make so, like side chairs or dining chairs, like mm-hmm. chairs that are meant to be uh, sat at a table. And mm-hmm. so 
that means one of the positions you would sit in them would be like with your elbows on, you know, leaned forward with your elbows on the table. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're comfortable at a table. But if you took them out of that context and just sat it in front of like a screen to sit there for three hours, you would find yourself in like five to ten minutes. You'd feel like, okay, I'm pretty ready to be in another different position. Yeah. 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 yeah, I want to do. A, I want to have a chair review show where I do three chairs and have a Lord of the Rings marathon, Ooh. and for each one, <laughs> I sit in a different chair. <laughs> That's a good idea. There you go, Tim. What about chair making or tool making, and the way that you approach craft satisfies something that you don't feel you would get from another job or career? Yeah, maybe I would say that I feel pretty fortunate to spend a lot of time in what people sometimes describe as a flow state. Um, Mm. So, and partially because, like I said, I've made like 2000 of these of the same tool. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the type of thing that a lot of people would describe as monotonous or like boring. Mm -hmm. Um, But I actually find that I like that kind of repetition and that it, I'm always trying to like do things a little bit slight, very slightly better or faster that there is actually subtle variety in the repetition. But um, yeah, so in that repetition, I find that my mind can go interesting places and mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, a feeling of, I like, like when I start a batch of reamers, I enjoy seeing it every step of the way through Um all the way to the end. And so I know as soon as I start, I see one step complete and I think, oh, that feels nice. And then mm-hmm. I get to execute the next step. And then I see that step complete and I think, oh, look at them now. And then I get to do <laughs> the next step. And uh, yeah, there's, I just enjoy that process going through there. It's like mm-hmm. a, my mind is simple, I guess, maybe, or I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that is that is wildly inaccurate. <laughs> um, but I would also say, like, I don't. I think I could find that in a wide, for relatively wide variety of um, of other things, or a number of other things. Anyways, I don't think it's limited to just this one thing. So it's more about like mm-hmm. not not the actual thing that you're making, but the the process is is something that you really enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Or I, yeah, even in general, maybe activities that I'm drawn to tend to be Mm -hmm. like activities that things that you can never really master. Like there's all, yeah, there's always something, no matter how many of those you've made, there's always something you can fine tune. Yeah, you can do it better. And so in that, that exploration is interesting to me. That knowing that, Mm -hmm. oh, no matter how much time I put into this, like I can still put, it'll still be there tomorrow for me Mm -hmm. to continue to learn more. Dang, that's very inspiring. It is, yeah. Do you feel that ability to be self-directed around that is really important for you? I think it's incredibly important. And it's not something, it's something that I also, maybe especially in more recent years, struggle as as time goes on, especially in like the woodworking side of things for me. Mm-hmm. It's It can be harder for me to find the focus and ability to self-direct uh it was very easy for me initially and like as more and as i do the same the thing this thing for more years it's like a little harder for me to 
find that same state of mind. Like as in you feel slightly less motivated to push yourself in new directions or just to hit the grind in general? Yeah, to hit, maybe to hit the grind, that it is, you know, it's a grind. And mm-hmm. just like maintaining your focus uh, through that, I think can be hard. Is that something you, st- like, do you have, are you resentful of that? Or are you just sort of like, well, this is kind of where I am at this point in, you know, Tim Manny, chair maker, tool maker. Uh, yeah, I think it land. just kind of, yeah, I think that. I think it just kind of is where I am. And so mm-hmm. just being aware of it and know, and um, trying to do what I can to like, okay, well, how do I harness that, that focus? What are mm-hmm. the ways that I can, uh, that I can rebuild that thing? Or how can I make this interesting to me? Um, mm-hmm. Those, those kinds of questions are maybe, maybe yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. Maybe this is part of that. This is part of that, like not like intentionally not trying to paint a perfect picture, right? To say like, yeah, oh yeah, there's, <laughs> right. there's struggle here too. You know, it's not. Yeah. Um, uh, I used to have a full time job with benefits doing book related activities, but I always knew I wanted to work for myself. And so when we had the opportunity to move to Bloomington, I was like, oh yeah, this is my chance. And so for the last you know three or four years, I've worked really, really hard to try to build up, you know, sort of like clients and different, a diversity of things that I do. And I really kind of feel like I burnt myself out um, mm-hmm. throughout the course of last year. And at the beginning of this year, I've had a really hard time finding that motivation to really get back in the grind, whereas it was just like I was ravenous for every opportunity to do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, and right now I find myself a little bit at a crossroads um, mm-hmm. and trying to take a step back, which this whole lockdown thing has been a great opportunity to do that and really figure yeah. out what it is that I'm trying to do here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. I don't think you're alone in that, like as far as craft, crafts, people ship <laughs> goes, <laughs> um, I think. Yeah. I think it's something, honestly, that we, I hear a lot of from most of my friends, which are almost all craftspeople. Um, it's just like, you know, you, you kind of go through highs and lows of having a lot of energy and being very, very motivated for one thing in particular, and then just sort of getting burnt out. And I don't, I think part of that is the... I think, yeah, I think part of it is that like the system we live in is just not really built for like living a life that isn't just driven by um, profits or something. And I, I don't know, you know, or like this constant a, productivity. <laughs> yeah, just like constant productivity. And that's a really huge difference between the United States and Europe, I think. To me, it was like a drastic difference where when I was in Sweden, they were taking tea breaks and, you know, giving themselves time for themselves, like literally giving them like self-care time in the middle of a Mm. work day. And that is just would have, would be unthinkable in the United States. And I, I just, that, that's something that makes me kind of sad. And I, I feel like craftspeople a lot of times get caught up in that like constant productivity mostly because we need the money 
small margin. <laughs> you know, in order to like live, you know. And so I don't know. It's you just, know what's uh, it's one of those things that I've been thinking about this winter that is like directly related to that actually is I feel like I I actually need a certain amount of time in the workshop that is like unstructured kind of mm. play time. Mm-hmm. And that when kind of looking back at the you know the 10 years or so that I've been doing this type of work for myself like solely self-directed um the times that have been the most creative and also the most productive are actually they were fairly loosely structured and or they they had periods like periods of time in there that were almost like an opportunity to be bored in the workshop does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um, just kind of being in the workshop and feeling like, huh, what am I going to do right now? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. huh. Uh, and, be, and being able to allow yourself, give yourself the permission to have that time, even yeah. if you do have work on your bench, but just to be like, well, I'm definitely not feeling that. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah. what should I do instead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that time that actually is... I. I was just hearing Amy, what you were saying about being in Sweden and seeing the way that people had that time. And I was kind of seeing moments for myself this past winter of just like putting wood in the stove in the workshop mm. and kind of like sitting in front of the stove for a minute yeah, or 15, you know, and yeah. that <laughs> I would have, I would have times feeling like, Oh man, I should probably just like, I should probably just focus and get going but also having times of feeling like, oh no, this this thing is important too. You know, it's it actually yeah. like if I can get myself to this space, there's going to be uh, more focus when I jump in at the lathe or whatever. So. Okay, so Tim, if someone is interested in learning about chair making, what are some resources they can start with? Uh, Peter Galbert's book, Chairmaker's Notebook, is. Okay. Um, is just like such an awesome resource. It's really comprehensive. And um, Pete is a friend of mine. And I, so I, I was, we were friends when he was writing that book. And mm-hmm. I remember when he sent me a couple chapters early on to read. And I remember just feeling like, oh man, this is, it made me feel like, uh, remember like the time that I first walked into Curtis Buchanan's workshop and mm. the door, that door kind of opening into this whole world of green woodworking, like Windsor chair making, uh, the draw, like what the draw knife is, <laughs> um, <laughs> that specific tool. Um, yeah. Which for our listeners, could you explain? Yeah, draw knife yeah. is basically, it's like a, uh, it's like a long eight to 10 inch blade with uh, two handles that kind of bend around. It's just a I would say it's like the um, coat of arms of the chair maker. It's like our, <laughs> it's kind of like our perfect tool. Yeah. Kind of like how you picture like blacksmiths having like, you know, a silhouette of an anvil behind yeah. their logo. Y'all would yeah. be like two draw knives crossed over to- each other. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so Pete's book for me, I, what I felt when I, what I feel when I, and what I still feel when I, you know, pick it up to reference it because I still reference it because there's so much useful information in there. Um, even, you know, even to people with tremendous amount of experience, um, 
is that it just opened that world to anyone who could buy that book, where previously that world was open to me by entering Curtis's workshop, which only so many people can have that experience. So, mm-hmm. um, so I feel like Pete's book is an amazing resource. And then Curtis also has like a, he has a YouTube channel where I don't even know how many chairs he has covered now building on that channel, but, um, step-by-step through the process of building chairs. Um, you can watch, uh, yeah, Curtis goes, breaks it all down. And so that's a, that's a useful, another really useful resource. So those, and those are two of the people that I've learned the most from about, about making chairs. So on your website, you have a diversity of woodworking related offerings, like plans and tools and chairs and teaching and all sorts of things. Um, do you find that having uh, these different products and services to be distracting or is it a way to for you to keep things interesting in your work? It's like so key for me to be able to change it up. And um, yeah, specifically the teaching is uh, is like that's probably the thing that I'm the most interested in at this point. And why is that? I don't know. I just love connecting with people in that way. And sometimes getting the feeling for certain people, like you're opening a door that you can see they're really going to, they're really going to run through or they're ready to run through. And mm. yeah, well, mm-hmm. I think when I started te- teaching a little bit, it was a re- like, it was maybe socially felt like a challenge to me or something like kind of draining or um, mm-hmm. taxing. And mm-hmm. in the last year or so I think it's made a turn for me where I was coming back from teaching a spoon carving workshop in the last fall that I was driving home after a weekend so it was like a Sunday I'd been teaching at North Bennett Street in Boston and um I was driving home and I just had the feeling like man I could start that again tomorrow wow oh cool yeah yeah I just felt like oh man I so um there's a certain feeling there of like oh I'm kind of learning how to navigate that a little bit better which also means yeah. that I feel like I'm more available to the people in the class and mm-hmm. um, I'm not having to protect myself or anything. I just feel like I can just really show up and help people. And that's a great, fun, like, what more could you want? That's, that feels yeah, like. Yeah, that's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. 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 Well, Something I aspire to. I was going to ask if somebody wanted to take a workshop with you, are, do you have consistent gigs lined up? Do you do private lessons? You know, what? Where? what's the best way for someone to look into that yeah so i have and as we talk about this i'm like oh yeah i haven't updated that page on my website in a while but um (laughs) but i usually i i aspire to keep that a page on my website fresh with whatever i have going on there and um Mm -hmm. yeah often i teach i have a pretty regular spoon carving class that i teach down at north bennett street in boston um uh plymouth craft is another place i often teach uh with uh peter follinsby and Paula Marcoux and Pret Woodburn, um, organizing that and there. I'll basically, if Paula ever asks me to do anything, I just say yes. So, um, <laughs> cause she's there. It just like, I love those people. It's all, it's such a great organization and, uh, I know anything they do, they're going to do with the most integrity and just like so well. So, um, mm-hmm. so I, yeah, I, I like to teach down there also, but I don't, I haven't, really set up to teach out of my own workshop. I would like to, um, Pete Galbert and I are always talking about me, um, teaching a chair at his place sometime, which I haven't figured out the specifics of. So at some point that kind of thing will happen. My, um, 
my experience of you is that you're just like very welcoming and like a calm presence and mm. um you. your personality i think is really it's for me is very nice to be around and do you think that that has any influence on your work um and do you find like a tension in you know mass producing you know supposedly mass producing reamers mm. or something is there like do you feel bogged down by any of your work sometimes that makes you feel like you can't be, you know, as internally joyful as I think you are? <laughs> I mean, I would say like, I would, tr I'd say like when my mind is in the right place, I see mm -hmm. the anything I make as like a, an opportunity to interact with someone in, in that way. Mm -hmm. Or does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So like, I think I try to, I, every batch of those reamers I make, I just try to make them as good as possible, as I, as is possible for me. Um, mm -hmm. And in hopes that, you know, someone, when they, you know, they've waited probably like six to eight weeks to get this tool, they, mm -hmm. uh, they buy it, you know, that comes in the mail, they open it up and they might, I would hope that they feel like, ah, you know, like, mm -hmm. yes, the, mm -hmm. this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And so it doesn't, I think that I maybe like, I'm trying to find, I, I've said, I think I was telling a story earlier about kind of enjoying seeing each step of the process of making those tools in the workshop. Like, sorry, what kind of batch size are you working in? I do batches of 30 now. Okay. Oh, wow. And do you take a, like a, if someone wanted one, they would take an order from you Yeah, or you would take pre-orders. And then when you get 30, you make the batch. Yeah. I, it's a very, uh, low tech, uh, low tech business, which is that people <laughs> just email me and they say, Hey, I want, I want a reamer. I can't find any information about how I would go about getting one. And I say, Oh, you've done the right thing by emailing me. <laughs> you pass, you qualify. Yeah. Now. And then I just put their name on a wait list and, uh, usually by the time I finish making a batch, they're all sold. And then I start oh, cool. keeping the, doing the next round. So that's how, that's how things have historically kind of worked. But yeah, there's something about, you know, for me really enjoying each of those steps through the process and kind of having that moment of feeling like, Ooh, I like seeing them when they're at this stage. Um, mm. I hope that translates to the person on the, you know, the customer on the other end. Who is someone inside of your craft that you admire and this isn't a ranking system yeah. <laughs> so most people kind of they they get a little sh like gun shy um so it's not like your ultimate craft crush but it's maybe like someone you wish you could take a class with or you just really enjoyed being around or something um and then can you can you give us a person outside of your craft that you feel the same way towards so inside the craft there are, there are so many even in, and it's hard for me to go outside of my chair world, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, Curtis, who I learned from comes to mind. He and I just talked, um, last week, which was really fun kind of hearing how he's managing the pandemic or navigating that space was, was really good. And, uh, mm -hmm. Pete Galbert is another close friend of mine who, uh, you know, just the way that he teaches is something that I've drawn a lot from, uh, wa mm -hmm. watching how, and Amy, you took a class with Pete, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I, I just love the way, like he is so, his teaching is so careful and methodical and 
just so good. His quality of teaching is really, really high. And that's inspirational to me. And then just the way that he's always diving into this very specific details of everything and mining mm-hmm. it and really finding new yeah. depth and interesting stuff. And, and then uh, Bern Chandley, who's an Australian chair maker. Yeah, gosh. I mean, uh, Burns' work, I just like aesthetically, it's like he's found a path through like a million laser beams <laughs> of like bad ideas, you know? It's like Mission and, Impossible. Yeah, I mean, it's like he, he, I'll see chairs that he's made and I'll be like, oh yeah, I tried that. It looked terrible. But like somehow, <laughs> you know, somehow he's like really found. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how he does it. Uh, he makes these really beautiful contemporary Windsor style chairs. And often mm-hmm. when people make contemporary Windsor, Windsor style chairs, they just look like factory mass produced, no visual interest. Yeah. They don't, they look blobby yeah. and uninteresting. Yeah. 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 And bur- burns just look elegant and modern. I don't know how he does yeah. it. It's amazing. Those are, and um. then uh, another person who's teaching, I really admire is Peter Follinsby. Actually. I love the way, the way he navigates like group dynamics, I think is. <laughs> yeah. He, he's like a, he's like a wizard. It's uh it's pretty amazing. Yeah. He has a beard and everything. <laughs> he does, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like an off-shift wizard. He's like, yeah. I'll leave the cloak at home today. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anyone outside? Yeah, the, um, there's a person who comes to mind maybe, which is just a, a recent thing. There's a woman who I follow on Instagram who is basically a, a gait specialist, like what? W- uh, walking g-a-i-t oh oh i was oh. like she's making like i thought these were like wooden gates no. yeah yeah nope. okay so she's like a kind of like posture gate specialist um oh, cool. and her name's courtney conley and her instagram is gate happens and um, <laughs> nice yeah good. like it's so detailed it's really like mm-hmm. looking at the nitty-gritty getting in there to the details like that's where it's happening and that's what I love. I love when things get into the detail. It's like, yes, let's get there. Let's not like do this generalizing. Let's like dive right in. So I, I love that. Yeah. I get a lot from that. And I actually get a lot in terms of like how to, how I hold my body while I'm working. And it's helped mm-hmm. me notice asymmetries of my stance. So where I put more weight or less weight on one foot or the other and if you do that for, you know, six hours a day where you've got more, for me, say I have a tendency to put more weight on my left leg and, uh, you do that for six hours a day and it's going to create some problems in your body. So trying to notice those. And Uh, outside of the craft, um, you're in now, which is, uh, both tool making and chair making, what else are you interested in? And maybe, maybe we'll add, uh, yeah, body work in that maybe to to get something a little new. Ooh, yeah. Um, what am I interested in? I enjoy surfing in large part. It's another activity that you can like never get good at. Basically, it takes, like, <laughs> eternity to get good at, and so. But it's fun <laughs> to um, like for me, it gets me kind of tied into what's going on with the ocean, and um, I live mm-hmm. in Maine, and so um, right near the coast, and so it keeps me in like staying in tune with where the swells are coming from and what the weather systems are doing. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania and then lived in North Carolina and Tennessee for a bunch of years. And, uh, when I moved to Maine, the ocean was kind of like, I had always, 
even through growing up, I'd spent time at the ocean, but never, um, uh, but I'd never lived there. And so mm -hmm. I was, I've had always felt like real connection with mountains and forests and these kinds of spaces. Mm -hmm. And the ocean, when I first moved here 10 years ago, it felt pretty foreign to me. And uh, surfing and kind of following the weather and the swells has been a way that started to, I feel kind of like, oh yeah, this, I have a similar affinity now or like kind of mm -hmm. understanding that I mm -hmm. have for the mountains and forests and stuff. I also just watched um, Point Break recently. Oh yeah. And um, 50 year yeah. storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to do a lot of cold water submersion, Ooh. Um, but I've, I think I did it a little too much, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> As in you were staying in too long or too frequently? Yeah, maybe both or like just not actually tuned into my, it feels like now, like it's a huge, it actually takes a huge toll on my body. Mm. Um, where, but for a long time, it felt really, really good to me. Um, mm -hmm. right at this point right now, it's like, I don't know. I actually had a really nice swim in the ocean, uh, just a dip in a couple of weeks ago that was really refreshing and it was back to feeling good so maybe i maybe i'm back in the zone where i can do it again but <laughs> nice there was a minute there where it just felt like oh this just feels terrible why do i do this to myself <laughs> <laughs> like just be nice just be nice to yourself just, yeah. <laughs> what are you trying to prove yeah yeah like why have you been doing this for so long You're like i'm all you got tim treat me better <laughs> totally, totally yeah <laughs> Uh, Tim, so if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Um, you can find me at um, on Instagram, and I even have to I'll look it up real quick to see what it see what my <laughs> handle is. And I post rarely, but it's still so it's Tim dot Manny T I M dot M A N N E Y, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's something I always am intending to do a little bit more with than I do. So I, I hope to. <laughs> get a little more active there at some point. And then uh, my website is timmanny.com. Uh, oh, keep it cool. simple. Yeah, keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. Um, and if you want those reamers, send an email. Just send an email. Yeah. There's a contact thing there. <laughs> just, just reach out. Let me know. Well, Tim, thank you so, so much for the time uh, you've taken to share a little bit about what you're up to uh, and where you're coming from. Well, thanks for having me. It was nice to, nice to chat with both of you. Yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Okay, next up, we have an interview with bookbinder and Stitchcraft practitioner Aaron Fletcher. And to give you a glimpse into the material-laden world of bookbinding, here's a brief clip from that interview. I don't know. I just, I just feel like I'm sort of spiritually like connecting with Sybil every time that I use them. Whoa, <laughs> that's really cool. I like that. Dang, that just made little tiny hairs on my arms go. Oh, really? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay, Umble, take us home. <laughs> Please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us because it helps with the show's visibility. Yes. Thank you so much to everyone who has taken the time to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As I said before, it's really weirdly very important to help people find the show. So thank you. Also, thanks to everyone who's contributed to our Patreon account. Every dollar helps us bring you meaningful and entertaining interviews and enables us to build a community that supports folks trying to get into handcraft. 
In particular, thanks to Will for your generous contribution through the website and to our new patrons, Alyssa, Kyle, Rachel, and William for supporting us on Patreon. We're over halfway done towards filling our minimum requirements for the t-shirt and thanks to you all who have reserved one already. Also, follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guests' work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. You can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. If you have any questions, interview requests, or other crafts you would like to see represented, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. Obviously, Amy and I are just two people with our own interests to guide us and a limited range of experiences to draw from, but we're dedicated to covering as much ground as we can, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Mm-hmm. And though this may just be two yahoos hanging out in their living rooms making chit-chat, we're forever grateful to those who have helped make this podcast a reality. Thanks, Brad Vetter, for your graphic design, our good friends the High Divers for letting us use your tunes, our resident poet Justin Williams for his commercial tidbit wizardry, and to Ian Carstens for his help and advice with the technical side of things. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time.